So we're on to, I guess this is part four of the second Ask Me Anything session. And this is kind of turned into this long rambling, well, maybe not rambling, it's somewhat directed, but kind of an overview of a lot of what I've been looking at over the past several years. And I'm obviously giving a very simplistic explanation of some of these things. There's so many details involved with just the breakdown of glucose to pyruvate and then all the pathways that it can take into the mitochondria, all the rate limiting steps that exist at the mitochondria, both on the outer surface, in the intermitochondrial membrane, and within the mitochondria itself. And those rate regulating steps also affect how other nutrients can be absorbed. So this is a very, very complex conversation, and I'm pretty much giving the highlights. I'm trying to give the overview of the most essential features of what we see. And so in the last discussion of cancer, somebody forwarded the podcast uh, to a biomed student, and the biomed student's response really exemplified how important the details in this discussion are because they immediately they said well it's stupid to say that glucose are the cause because when we see in cancer cells they don't become necessarily purely glycolytic before they become cancer it's when they turn into cancer they become glycolytic and he gave all these studies and essentially what he did was he ex he provided evidence of exactly what I described. I never said that cells go completely glycolytic and then turn cancerous. What I, what I said, which is really important, is the mitochondria, I always call it a colony because there's, there's usually several, the mitochondria colony inside the cell starts to become very sick and they start to fuse and you get fewer functional mitochondria and the ones that do exist actually have a lower capacity, but they've become more efficient. But they still can't because there's fewer of them and they're damaged. They cannot meet cell energy demands. And we start to see an uptick in glycolytic fermentation. So it's using uh, its anaerobic respiration in the cell. And as that process goes on, then there's some tipping point, like I said, and there's a literal phase transition in the cell. And all of a sudden, all the oncogenes become fully active and they're slowly upregulating as this mitochondrial process is going on and the cell becomes primarily glycolytic, but it doesn't become, it doesn't necessarily become completely glycolytic. Different cells and different tissues have different properties. And on top of that, it's the pathway that leads towards that phase transition. And that's, that's really important to consider here. And that's why I think drugs like DNP will end up being the probably the ultimate treatment for cancer. And by treatment, I don't mean treating cancer. Once, transfer, once cancer has set in, it becomes very, very difficult to fight for reasons I specified in the last podcast. Like every cell in your body is pretty sick. So, and it just happened to be that one tissue tipped over before anything else. And it's very easy to get other tissue to tip over. So curing it is a huge uphill battle, very difficult. Childhood cancers I have more hope for because those are not metabolically derived. But adult onset cancers, metabolic cancers, I have very little hope for real headway in quote unquote cures of these cancers once you have them. But if we know somebody is on the precipice of this disease, if they're that deep into the disease state, then these targeted dosages of something like DNP, a strong phospholytic decoupler, could tip over all the very dangerous cells. And this this is a delicate argument. And, it, and it's an important argument to say that the cells don't become completely glycolytic either. That's, that's a very important point to make. If you don't make that point, then you start to really confuse yourself with how cancers work because epithelial-derived cancers, which there are many in the body, these usually start in the, the lining 
the outer inner lining of organs. And these cancers are very tenacious. And there are some breast cancer cell lines that actually have a lot of properties of epithelial cancers. But those cancers, as they they make that slow approach to the phase transition, they they keep some of their mitochondrial capacity. And a lot of cells do. And that that's what's been this big fight between the Warburg effect where cells become glycolytic and that's when they're cancerous and not. And it turns out if you don't know what you're doing, if somebody has particular epithelial cancers, they thrive on ketones. So if you put somebody on a ketogenic diet and you don't understand how cancer works, you actually probably accelerated their cancer growth. So we have to be very careful about what kind of tumors we're treating with what kind of diets. And without this fundamental understanding of the phase transition of cells, we're not going to get there. And this biomed student actually provided great evidence for what I was talking about. Before the cell becomes cancerous, there's this uptick of oncogenes. And then all of a sudden, there's this huge phase transition, and the cell becomes primarily glycolytic. So he actually gave a lot of research that said exactly what I had in my podcast, and because he didn't, he probably didn't listen to the conversation too much because it seemed very clear that he hates ketogenic diets and said it was stupid to blame any problems on glucose and ketogenic diets weren't any good. So clearly he had a bias that did not allow him to fully comprehend the discussion in that, in that podcast. But it's, an import, it's, it's very, very important to understand this. And what's even more important is realizing that the cells that make that phase transition from healthy cell to cancer, they are the really dangerous ones because not only have they gone through this change to where they're now cancerous and they're high power output. So they're high power output again, but remember, they're very delicate. They can achieve this power output, but they have to have a, a, the right environment to do so. In that situation, those are the cells that then trigger other surrounding cells to become cancerous because they start to give off other signals and inflammatory signals and they amplify inflammatory signals that triggers a chain reaction around them. And again, this is a unifying principle of cancer other than where we are in the academic arena. In the academic arena, what we... and in those, those progenitor cells, the, the ones that have made the phase transition, I'll call them con- cancer cells from around, the cancer cells are the, the phase transition ones are the really dangerous ones. And as they poison their surrounding environment, they can trigger other cells to go down that pathway and to make full phase transitions and so on and so forth. And in the academic world, there's this there's now all these debates and everything going on and the debates are trying to make sense of the science of cancer because they've discovered what they have termed um wow uh stem cancer uh i i uh totally spaced for a second like cell stem cancers cell stem like cancers and these are cancers that have a lot of properties of stem cells and they can reproduce and make other cancers and the reproduction, though, isn't as rapid, so it's it's this kind of mixing of, well, we've got these cells. These are the dangerous ones. These are the ones that have gone through the full phase transition. They have actually changed shape because their mitochondrial colony has collapsed, so this has changed the shape of the cell, and these cells can then move very freely, these... these um, stem cell type cancers can move very freely in the tissue and that's only possible when they have this new shape so this actually unifies all of that it's very clear what happens is you get the one or two cells they make the full phase transition to cancer they make the cells around them sick they might trigger some of those cells to become completely cancerous and acquire this stem cell like quality and they can also move to other tissues this, so this is all a very, it, it's not that complicated, but you have to listen carefully to what's being said and what's being proposed to fully evaluate it. And 
you know, breast cancer is a good example. There are several cell lines in breast cancers and they have different features. And if you think that it's only carbohydrates and you should give everybody a ketogenic diet, well, some of the worst breast cancers, the most tenacious breast cancers, if you put somebody on a ketogenic diet, you're going to trigger excessive growth of their breast cancer. This is not ideal. So you have to understand how these transitions happen and how important the details are. Even, even these broad stroke details can help to explain everything. And this is also why I kind of issued the warning about MCT oil if you're on a mixed diet. And there, there were some astute questions because I didn't bring up exogenous ketones and the problem with MCT oils is even if the cell's really sick the, and the normal pathway for fatty acid metabolism is turned off, MCTs can actually sneak into the mitochondria through other pathways. And when they do that, they change the energy production within the cell, which can cause damage. It's, it can help to continue the damage to the inside of the cell, also help damage on the outside outer membrane of the cell, which is really important for mitochondrial function. And my fear there is because it's augmenting energy production in the mitochondria, it might slow down the progression of that cell sickness just enough so that it can make the phase transition instead of dying. And again, this is why I think DNP or phospholytic decouplers could be so powerful because they would put such massive stress on the mitochondria. The ones that are sick enough to almost make the transition will just die. And you would eliminate all of the potential source of cancer before it could even occur. So we can't cure it, but we could completely eliminate cancer or at least 90% of cancers. About 90% of cancers are metabolic cancers. So MCTs could be dangerous for that reason. Now, if you're a high-performance athlete, you probably have less to worry about, especially if you're taking MCTs around your training sessions uh, because you almost, in many circumstances, you almost can't produce energy fast enough. So this is one reason exercise keeps mitochondria healthy for longer because there's almost no way for them to become oversaturated with fuel and the limiting mechanisms that turn them off in case there's too much there's too much energy demand and they can't make up for that which can also damage mitochondria uh, the processes that limit that and slow that down are fully intact if you're exercising everything's running fine if you exercise regularly basically uh, that's not a that's not a hundred percent statement but basically and that's why you could take mct oil in those situations and get away with it Ketones as well. You could probably take exogenous ketones if you're a high-performance athlete and not see many problems whatsoever. And a potentially small, very, very small performance gain. And I say very small because the performance gain would be mostly in high power output demand. Uh, it would allow the mitochondria to make a little bit more energy for a little bit longer than would normally be possible through glucose, lactate, so on and so forth. So there are some, some advantages. And if you look at all the studies with exogenous ketones making a difference, they're all in people and in situations of high metabolic demand that the body can't meet for some reason. And so deep sea diving, that's an example of where studies have shown some benefit of ketones. Uh, very high athletic performance. Ketones show some assistance, very little. And, and then in really high metabolic organs like the brain that is sick. So in Alzheimer's or dementia, if you give people ketones, you're not helping the disease state at all. You've made absolutely no difference. But what you've done is you've added another fuel source that can enter the mitochondria in a different way to alleviate some of the symptoms. So while you're getting exogenous ketones in that situation, you're still getting sicker and you'll get so sick that nothing's going to help eventually. 
but you've alleviated some of the symptoms. The neurons can then work. Now, the problem there is when you're giving it to the general population, if the general population is taking exogenous ketones, A, it's not doing anything for them metabolically preferential. It's not helping them lose fat. It's not doing anything. But the, the, the thing that scares me, just like MCT oil, exogenous ketones could give very sick cells that are going to make the phase transition. They could give them just enough energy supply to help them make the transition to cancer instead of dying like they should. And unfortunately, we haven't had exogenous ketones studied in that way yet, but I think there's a massively high probability that that, is the, that, that will be the case. And again, you can see why these really fundamental theories of disease are so important because we can make predictions instead of just guessing and when you look at all the studies where ketones made a difference it it wasn't the study wasn't studying ketones the study was studying an ultra low carb diet where there were almost no carbohydrates and in that situation ketone levels rise in the body that does not mean the ketones had any benefit whatsoever it's just a natural process and the main benefit comes from taking all the carbohydrates out of your diet. So of course the leap is, oh my gosh, ketogenic diet, there's these ketones, they must be magic, we can isolate them and we'll sell them to people. Well, it could have a very large downside. So I really highly recommend against ever taking exogenous ketones. I don't know why you would. Uh, they, They really make no sense. If you're going through treatment for say Alzheimer's or dementia, I can see how they can help alleviate symptoms while you're going through treatments, but I really can't see any other benefits whatsoever. Um, It's just kind of one of those canards and there's so much money behind it. And I honestly, I think that's what's propped up the ketogenic wave this time in a fundamental way is because now there's a ton, there's a way to make tons and tons of money off of that discussion of ketogenic diets and ketones and you can now target people who could never never really want to adopt a ketogenic lifestyle but give them ketones so they feel like they're getting an advantage so and in effect what they're probably doing is increasing their risk of cancer and this is I mean, if, if you think I'm being an alarmist, I'm not. This is just scary stuff. If we don't understand how these things are working, we can inadvertently make recommendations that make people much, much worse. And that's what happened in the beginning of all this whole thing with dietary recommendations. That's what happened. There just wasn't enough information to make recommendations, but recommendations were made anyway, despite some evidence beginning to show that those recommendations were not a good idea but the problem still was there was no underlying scientific foundation to say exactly why those diets would be bad and to predict the effects of different macronutrient makeups and even down to you can if you have this correct model at least the model i've come up with you can actually make predictions of the effects, the different effects of, say, glucose-based carbohydrates or fructose-based or a mixture of them. And there's reasons why you would assume a mixture like high fructose corn syrup or table sugar would accelerate mitochondrial damage. There's a reason for that. And then you could also look at mixtures. Well, you could obviously specify types of fat that could be bad if you're already in a disease state like mct oil there would be no other way to assess if that is potentially dangerous or not in the long term now remember i'm trying to make predictions over a person's lifetime like what's going to affect them and most of the most comprehensive studies we have where they try to control things are maybe a year or two long that's not enough to assess what might be down the road for this person i mean think about it a healthy person normally won't won't start adding excess body fat until they're maybe 25 years old so and i haven't discussed it but one of the first symptoms of mitochondrial dysfunction is adding excess body fat 
especially centrally around the waist area. So imagine that it takes 20, it could take 20 to 25 years before the effects manifest themselves in a way to the first symptom. So if we want to talk about people being healthy, we have to have this underlying framework that makes all these predictions not, well, these studies said this happened in a year or these studies said this happened in two years. We have to be able to say, look, here is all the mechanistic processes within the cell. Here are how all of those things are changed with all the different foods we consume. And here are the consequences and here's the roadmap for those consequences. We have to have that in place. And that framework can actually be tested along the way. Even though you can't test one person every six months for 20 years, what you can do is get different populations and test them in different parts of the disease state and see if everything lines up. We could actually verify these models without trying to put people on very specific diets for 20 years and trying to analyze everything. We don't need to do that. All the evidence is available. We just have to gather in the proper way and understand what it is we're looking for. This is obviously a huge rant in health. Uh, Part of this is triggered by, I, I saw a clip recently from the Joe Rogan experience and of Peter Atiz saying why people can't lose fat. And I'm at a fundamental level, he's just wrong. He's just flat out wrong. And when his idea breaks down, we say, oh, well, people, we see them eating, you know, not that much food and they're still gaining weight, but they still can't, they can't lose weight, blah, blah, blah. He just throws up his hands and say, oh, well, there's genetic factors and then there's environmental factors and there's all these factors and, you know, the people just can't do it. Well, that's, that's not actually the case. We should know why that's happening. And what made it clear that he doesn't want to even look into those things is he said, you know, my, my focus is longevity and it's not on fat loss. If, if I'm still working on fat loss, then I'm doing something wrong. That exposed his most fundamental misunderstanding because body fat accumulation is the first symptom of the disease state, and this is all related to mitochondrial degeneration, and longevity cannot exist if you are anywhere in the disease state. If you're anywhere in the disease state, your longevity is decreased. So if his goal has nothing to do with fat loss, then he doesn't understand anything about longevity. And that's really important why this type of framework needs to exist so we can all have the conversation. Like, I'm not really concerned about longevity. I'm not really concerned about body fat loss anymore. I know how to optimize those things, but those aren't my concern because if you focus on the disease state, all of those things happen automatically. Now, obviously, in sports performance, that's different. There's different things you need to do, and you can't, you have to understand how the, how the mitochondria work. You have to understand if there are any health trade offs, and you have to understand how to minimize those health trade offs. So in athletic performance, it is all exactly the same mechanisms, but we have the ability to make the right decisions on how we fuel the body and exploit those mechanisms in a way that improves performance and decreases as much damage as possible. And and we can do that. If you give me any type of exercise, I can tell you, at a basic level off the top of my head what your diet should look like and i could give you every single reason why this isn't just me like oh well you need to eat a lot of carbs because carbs fuel exercise and blah 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 like i could give you a very very detailed reason about exactly why i'm telling you what to eat when at what time of day and that's what body ai is based off of so the the conversation about how you eat and health and longevity and maximum sports performance it is all the exact same conversation and that's why i have a hard time with people who claim to be experts on exercise trying to give health advice because their advice doesn't line up because they they don't understand that the body is a continuum and i really don't understand that people who say well my expertise is is, you know, diet in reference to exercise or, well, I don't worry about exercise. My expertise is diet associated with health and fat loss. They're the exact same thing. 
And a, a very, very simple argument to make that clear to everybody is think about it. You have obese people who then transition and become athletes. We've seen that happen. And you have athletes who transition and become fat, sick people. So even in a single body, we see the entire spectrum of experience that the body can go through. And everybody can go through that spectrum of experience. Therefore, every single one of those topics is connected in an intimate way. And you can't be an expert on one if you're not an expert on the other. It's just not possible. Um, you, you may have stumbled onto, and you may have very good reasons to believe that your performance diet is the right one, and, and it could actually line up. But your argumentation for why it lines up is probably going to be lacking, and it also won't allow you to make those small improvements that could, that's the difference between second place and first place at an Olympic level. So even though a lot of these podcasts have been on health, longevity, whatever, cellular mechanisms, they're, they're directly related to exercise. And I mean, so much so it's amazing. You can actually write down a single equation for sports performance and your variables are testosterone levels, not estrogen levels, not male, female, not XY chromosome versus XX chromosome, testosterone levels and glycogen usage rate. So basically glycogen turnover. That Those are the two main variables. And this one equation will actually give you predictions for everything. Endurance performance increases, muscle mass increases, strength increases, and it's a single equation. And obviously this took me a long time to develop and I had to look at a lot, I mean, a massive number of different trends and equations and cycles that happen in the body to see what what functional relationships they had. And it actually turned out to be, it's not simple, but from a conceptual level, it's very simple. And... Again, that wouldn't have been possible without this underlying framework. I, w- I wouldn't have been able to, to get all the pieces to see the picture to then understand how the picture developed. And I keep saying and a lot. I, I think that's a good way to transition into, we've had some questions about exercise and uh, th- this is going to be off topic from some of the questions, but one in particular was, well, how much activity do we need to do to completely drain our glycogen levels in the body when we start a ketogenic diet, say? And they quoted some numbers from Lyle McDonald who, I mean, like nothing that comes out of Lyle's mouth these days is in any way reliable whatsoever. And just in as, as an aside, when he started, he actually started when there wasn't a lot of research on ketogenic diets particularly in the performance realm. So, and what little information there was and what little information he basically pilfered from Dan Duquesne, he put together proposed ideas around ketogenic diet and exercise performance. And from a scientific standpoint, that is perfectly valid. He was actually working within a good, sound scientific tradition. And what happened over the years as all of his ideas have been called into questions with a lot of research and a lot of discoveries that really make it impossible to heed his advice. He's gone down the path of vitriol and just yells at everybody for saying anything about him whatsoever. And that is not good science. So he he really did start out in a position that could have moved things forward in a very positive way. But unfortunately, whatever limitations he possessed didn't allow him to move farther than that. Uh, Once he made that point and he had a certain level of panache, I would say, in in the exercise community, he just stopped and then he just started attacking everybody who made any commentary whatsoever on his work. And it's a shame. He could have possibly taken that much farther. I don't. I don't know. Uh, I don't really know him 
and I'll, I'll be honest, if I never know him, that would probably be totally fine with me. But his recommendations on wiping out glycogen levels and the amount of exercise necessary are a very good example of what he did and and also dropping the ball. So if you look at studies that are often done to look at how fast glycogen levels can be can be drained, they're often done in young males. And this is where we can see a huge difference in female male performance and how we can understand how testosterone comes into play in different types of exercise performance. So in men, men always, I've talked multiple times, glycogen turnover is very essential for health. uh, And it's very essential for, it's incredibly essential for exercise performance, especially power sports. And it's important for health. So from that side of things, it looks like men have a huge advantage because basically anytime we do any type of activity over say 30% of our, our maximum capacity. So our maximum, our, of our VO2 max, let's say we can base it off that and all the equations can be translated. So if, if we're just over 30, 40, 40% of VO2 max, we're using up glycogen. Our body's just, it's just using it. Men do. Women, however, have to get up to really high VO2 max levels. And we're talking about nearly the 80% range and higher before they start to mobilize glycogen stores. And this tells us, just this piece of information tells us a ton and ton of information. It explains why men can run and lose some some body fat because body fat is very tied to glycogen turnover ability and why women can run and jog not sprinters, but just like the normal running, long distance running, and they tend to not lose body fat and in, and in some instances gain body fat, even though if you were to go by calories in, calories out, you would not be able to figure out why it is that they're gaining body fat. It would make no sense. But if you realize that it has everything to do with glycogen turnover, then it makes complete sense because they just can't turn over glycogen levels so much. Now, on the flip side... When men, men, when you are drained out of glycogen levels, that's why I said you could predict overtraining without HRV equipment anymore because you can guess pretty well for men based on how old they are or if you know something about their testosterone levels, you can make a really good guess about when their glycogen levels have petered out for exercise. If you know what exercise they're doing and the intensity they're at, you can make a really good guess once glycogen levels are gone, and this is specifically for power sports like either powerlifting, weightlifting, sprinting, those kind of things. Once those are gone, you're in the overtraining regime. End of story. Super easy to figure out. And the longer you stay in that overtraining regime, the more stress you put on your nervous your um, your nervous system, and the lower your performance is going to be the next time. And it and we know how long it takes the nervous system to recover. So like super simple, you don't need an HRV device anymore. Women, on the other hand, if they're not at 80% or higher VO2 max, they're just, they're not going to experience overtraining anything like men do. And on top of it, muscle growth is incredibly important or it's highly based on glycogen utilization. So men go in, blow out their glycogen stores, get a huge metabolic response for muscle growth, and boom, they're growing. Women go into the gym, work out pretty hard, but not 80% the whole time, and they don't get a lot of glycogen mobilization, and boom, they don't grow very much. They usually don't gain much muscle mass in those situations. Now, this also helps us understand CrossFit. And why women in particular seem to get very good advantages or very good results from CrossFit. And men, and again, I am taking out the class of men who are taking performance-enhancing drugs. And to reiterate, I have nothing against performance-enhancing drugs, only if it's not divulged that an individual is using them. I think that's very important. And unfortunately, and I completely understand that's hard to do in the United States because it's, it's hard to do over most of the Western world because they are illegal and you can get into 
a legal trouble for those. So I, I understand why that is hidden most of the time. Uh, in other instances, I know it's being hidden strictly for marketing purposes. But anyway, so if you take those people out, in men who do CrossFit, they actually ha- start to have some ad- very adverse performance results. Uh, loss of muscle tissue, uh, connective tissue weakening, loss of strength, nervous system burnout. And it's because they're burning through their glycogen levels really fast. And they're probably not topped off to begin with before they start their exercise. Women, on the other hand, within the CrossFit regime, they're almost always accessing their glycogen stores. So they're now all of a sudden on a regular basis cycling their glycogen stores and utilizing them during exercise. And it makes a huge difference for them. It will change their body fat storage. It will change their muscular strength. It will change their muscular tone. They will grow some muscle, although there's there's always limits for everybody. And so we can just in an instant, if we understand these relationships, in an instant look and say what we should expect in different exercise paradigms. But not only that, different exercise paradigms for different genders very quickly And not only that, different results and different recommendations based on the age of some people. For example, men, in general, men's testosterone levels, I accumulated a ton of data to try to map out uh, when men's testosterone levels actually peak. And on average, I can't remember the exact peak. It's like 24.7 years is the average. That's your peak testosterone production is within that age range. And within that age range, that's where a lot of studies have been done on glycogen utilization. And, and the, the peak, peak range there is why in our 20s we can get such great results from working out even if we're not killing ourselves every time in the gym. Because regardless, if we're in the gym lifting weights, men are using glycogen and they're getting a growth signal. End of story. Uh, but as men get older and their testosterone levels go down, that's why we see a lowering of effectiveness of resistance training because most of them don't keep pushing into a high enough VO2 max regime to continue to cycle glycogen levels. And that being the case, they don't get the same growth signal. And we, we see this in studies as well. If you take those people and you, if you take older populations and you monitor them and you make sure they achieve a certain exercise performance, then they do get the same growth signal again. And that's been one of those things that's confused. It's confused a lot of physiologists and a lot of people looking at cachexia and other age-related muscle wasting diseases. Like, why is this? Why is it if we monitor them and, and put them on a specific workout and we look at their power production, they get the same growth signal as young people but yet, every in day-to-day life, they're not getting the same growth signal. They're actually losing muscle mass. Why is that? Well, it literally comes down to testosterone levels. Testosterone deeply and fundamentally changes how the body accesses glycogen. And that one result of testosterone, it obviously does other things. But that one, result, that one effect of testosterone actually trickles all the way back down to what we've been discussing about mitochondria. And, of course, there's several missing layers there that I haven't discussed, but they're all there. You can trace it all back to how mitochondria gets affected with higher levels of testosterone. And... <laughs> And I'm not I'm not harping on testosterone as some magical hormone, although for a lot of health reasons it is actually somewhat of a of a miracle hormone. And in women, too, surprisingly, as they get older, assuming they haven't like really crossed the threshold of metabolic damage, as they get older, they also find that they have a, an easier time losing losing weight once they cross menopause because their estrogen levels have dropped and now their testosterone levels are higher than they used to be and they can access glycogen to a greater degree. It's still not as extreme as a 25-year-old male, but they they still can. So these differences are fundamentally important. 
And they also help us understand what seem to be really contradictory studies. So when you take endurance runners and you take in a particularly male endurance runners and you analyze their performance and you look at their natural testosterone levels, you come up with this idea that, well, testosterone doesn't matter in exercise performance because in endurance runners, it actually negatively correlates to performance. And we can now understand why the higher testosterone levels are forcing their forcing a male body to use more glycogen. And when that runs out, the body's not as adept at using fatty acids and it doesn't use fatty acids for as long of the exercise period. So there's going to be some energy deficit that occurs, but men whose testosterone levels are lower are better endurance athletes. And actually the demands of endurance exercise then lower testosterone levels so that they can become better at endurance. So we would expect supplementing with testosterone to worsen endurance performance, especially at the upper levels of endurance. And that's what the studies show. And this is a huge turnaround, right? Before it was, well, this makes no sense because we know testosterone has these other advantages, but in endurance exercise, because we called it all exercise, in endurance exercise, it has no benefits. It's actually a potentially negative benefit. But in these like sprinting and power sports, it's huge benefit. So what do we, like, why is that? Well, we know why. We would predict that now. Knowing this framework, we would predict, hey, yeah, endurance runners, give them testosterone. It should decrease their performance, lower their testosterone, and it should increase their performance. And Theoretically, women actually, especially at the upper extremes of endurance sports, you should see a shortening of performance differences between men and women. And these are, I'm just going to say, naturally hormonally augmented men and women. You should see a shrinking of performance differences as you go higher and higher into the realm of endurance. And you do especially as you get up into the ultra endurance level um, regimes like the ride across America, bicycling across the, across the United States as quickly as you can. Um, there's, there's no power sections of that race, unlike the Tour de France where they have the time trials. So power output is very important. Um, when we see ultra marathons, even in marathons, we see a shrinking and shrinking of the performance difference between men and women. And w- we, we should expect that. Now on the flip side, we should see an ever increasing difference in men and women when it comes to power sports and the level of testosterone available in the male athletes. And we do. <clears throat> so it, it really... In the performance regime, testosterone levels are important for the type of exercise that we're talking about and the type of event that we want to compete in. Now, naturally, and hopefully this little section is never taken out of context because I could see people using this and saying, well, transgender athletes, therefore, can, as long as they're on testosterone inhibitors or really high estrogen or whatever, they should be allowed to complete. So transgender women should be allowed to compete at the Olympic and higher levels with nat- with born females. I don't even know what terminology to use anymore, but I'm going to assume if female means you're born female and uh, transgender female means you made a transition from male to female. And on the face of it, if if you look at these testosterone results, then you would say, well, okay, that is somewhat correct, except that, you know, through the years after puberty, having all that extra testosterone allowed them to gain a lot more muscle mass. So if they transition later in life, they have a huge advantage. But there's another effect of testosterone that's really important that I've, n- I've never heard anybody even bring up in these debates, particularly on the side of transgender athletes who want to compete against women. And that's that you have to remember in the womb, we all start off female. Our phenotype, what we look like in the womb is female. And what makes that transition is the release of testosterone and not just the release, but the 
activation of different tissues from the testosterone. You may have heard of androgen insensitive people. These are literally men. They're, they're XY in their chromosome makeup, but they don't have any androgen receptors in their body. So in the womb, when testosterone released, releases, nothing happens because there's no activation. There's no receptors. And in that instance, they're actually born phenotypically female, and they usually never even find out that they're XY until around puberty. And then they find out that they have uh, testes where their ovaries should be. There's no way that they could ever become pregnant. They're, they, they never differentiated. And even in puberty, they usually become more feminine because they produce more testosterone, but the testosterone gets aromatized into estrogen. So uh, essentially, they, they would never know. Uh, so this is very important for the conversation about transgender athletes and where they should be placed. Um, you could easily argue a, a transgender female on a very strong testosterone suppressant might not perform as well in endurance exercises as as females um and they might then get an advantage if you put them with male athletes for endurance exercise so it's not a simple conversation whatsoever if our focus in athletics is competition these people shouldn't be entering nobody should be entering these these competitions with the idea of well i'm just going to smash everybody because if that's the case, like there's no competition. Like, why? What's the point? You know, I somebody. I, I thought this was a great analogy. It's you know, if you watch Superman movies, it's like, well, why didn't he ever play football? It's like he would have ruined the sport because the same team would win every. Whatever team had Superman would win every time. It, it would be pointless. And I think, like at the Olympic level and at the professional level. Of course, there's money involved and all that stuff, but I think the key, the core of it is that desire to compete. And you want to be placed in a group of people that you can compete with and who can also compete with you. Um, so, so, so it's really important to get this right, and it's really stupid to just get it wrong right off the bat. Now, I want to go back to some people may try to use that clip and say, oh, well, look, it's all related to testosterone levels. We don't have to worry about it. We can put transgender women in with normal, uh, with other female athletes. Everything will be fine. It doesn't matter if they dominate because the their estrogen levels are preventing testosterone from being being effective. And that's not entirely true. It's actually not true at all. Like I said, in the womb, we we start off female, and testosterone makes a lot of physiological changes then, and two of those physiological changes are incredibly important for athletics and they last the entire lifetime. And those are muscle fiber number. So men, testosterone triggers a larger differentiation of muscle fibers. So men will get an increase in muscle fiber number, which will determine their ultimate strength and muscle size later in life. And they actually have an increased number of skeletal muscle tissue satellite cells which also dictates how large and how strong your muscles can become later in life. And those are set before you're even born and they're due to testosterone. So even a transgender female athlete who is on some sort of uh, testosterone blockers or something to give them high estrogen levels, even if that's done before puberty, they still have a physiological advantage that you cannot take away and that you cannot ignore if you're talking about power sports and that's anything uh, powerlifting sprinting fighting bodybuilding any of those they will have an advantage that you cannot take away from them and it, it's really interesting to try to collect this data because there are very few studies have looked at it directly in humans. So I had to collect it as numbers they gave in other studies for other reasons. And the the normal curve, if you don't know what a normal curve is, you can look it up on, on Wikipedia. It's basically where if you sample enough people, there will be an average. 
and the distribution falls out like at one standard deviation on either side of average and you have to know what graph you're talking about for standard deviation but um one standard deviation represents you know 60 some odd percent of the population two standard deviations you're over 80 percent of the population somewhere in there three standard deviations you got like 99 percent of the population that you're that you're looking at so and the, the standard deviation is important because it it defines how sharp and tall that normal distribution is or how spread out and short it is so in this is an article I'd like to write because it needs a visual to go with it. But here's the important takeaway. So it turns out men and women have pretty close to the same average number of muscle fibers when they're born. But the normal distributions for the two look totally different. Women's, even though they have roughly the same average, it's still a little less. It's very sharp and very narrow, which means the vast majority of women are very very close to their average men's is spread out so that means you're gonna find a large number of men with a lot more muscle fibers than the average and you're actually gonna find a large number of men with lower than average but when you line the two distributions together you see something very quickly that isn't surprising if you pay attention to male and female athletics what you see is at the very upper echelon so at the three per, three deviations or more so over so one percent of the female population is in the extremes for women of muscle fiber number one percent now when you line those two up the male distribution over the female distribution so when women are in the 1% category, so these are the going to be the strongest, most powerful women in the population. That lines up at the point where you're at almost 30% of the male population is at that level or higher. So it makes no sense to say that transgender females even if they don't go through puberty if you if you if they begin transitioning before puberty have no advantage they still have a massive advantage there's a one in three chance that they have muscle that they that the number of muscle fibers they have there's a one in three chance that that is greater than 99 percent of the female population uh, women can could not compete in that the number of women who could compete against that would be very very small and this is no way reflective of my attitudes about transgender individuals whether it's pre-op post-op or people who choose not to go through a full transition only partial transitions i am making no judgment calls there whatsoever i actually had a very close friend from college through until about a decade ago we lost touch but i had a very close friend who was a male and who had transitioned to become female and like if and she she went through the full transition and if you're ever around these people and and i just say these people people who've transitioned or who are transgender spending time with them and at the gym in oakland where i would work out frequently there were some transgender individuals who were female and i actually saw them over the years transition to male they are every bit female or male there's there's no confusion in just talking with them or anything else they the, the like you you just you there's no reason you would know based on personality other than i mean you can try to look for some things i remember my friend tiffany actually went to have surgery to have her adam's apple shaved down so that that would be less of a a visual cue of her transition but so you could do those things but i mean i never i i didn't know her beforehand i only knew her as tiffany and i never would have imagined her as anything but a woman so what i'm saying is like this has nothing to do with the transgender community whatsoever this has to do with very important 
aspects of human physiology that tell us that it is completely unfair and it is unjust to put or to allow transgender females, no matter when they transitioned, to compete against females who were born female and are competing as female. It is completely, completely unjust. This isn't a matter of just, it's not fair, it's just unjust. There's no way that, the, that there can ever be fair competition in power and strength-based sports. There is just no way. So sprinting, you know, I've listed them over and over again, so it doesn't matter. And on, on the converse side, we have to have kind of a conversation about if, they've, if they want to compete in endurance exercise does that potentially give them different advantages uh, in one group and not another uh, if they've transitioned from the other way from uh, male to or from female to male what advantages and disadvantages do they have and this is a this is a conversation we could easily have based on the on facts and unfortunately the, the answer is not simple I think the right thing to do is, now you've got two classes of athletics. You have male and female. You add two more classes, transgender female, transgender male, and allow them to compete at the same level. You have to figure out what their qualification, quali- qualifying numbers need to be, but not don't make that permanent. Like We have to have that breakup for at least several years so that we can then get enough data to supplement the framework to say, okay, this is exactly where the advantages are. This is exactly where they can be competitive, where they will be over-competitive and obliterate the other populations. And this is how we have to structure these categories in the future. And that just has to be done. And I realize it's complex and it has, has to be figured out along the way, but that is the only, what I would call an instance of justice in who you will let who you let compete with whom it is the only way and it, is, and it is also the only just way to allow the transgender athletes to compete if you put them in with populations that cannot compete with them then you've basically taken away competition you've taken away their ability to test the extremes of what their body can do because they're going to be competing against people who can't keep up uh, and I mean, to me, that's just takes, it lowers everybody's sense of justice when it comes to athletics and sports. Uh, and, and the only way to get around that is, like I said, add these new categories. And at, at some time you have to decide, okay, where these categories are, are important. Can we differentiate them and break them out into the more traditional, say, high testosterone athletes and low testosterone athlete categories? Or, you know, what can we do? Um, But until we do something like that, and until we stop listening to people who have PhDs in intersectional racism, gender studies, I mean, those people are not scientists. And most of their work is sociological and philosophical, and it is not testable. And even in the small regimes where you can test pieces of it, it falls apart. So it's garbage. It's not science. So those people should not even be allowed in the discussion of transgender athletes in sports because they are not scientists. They have no scientific mind whatsoever. They have no experience in the field, and they do not understand how the body works whatsoever. And they usually misquote research without understanding it. And those are the ones who say, oh, well, look at endurance runners and testosterone negatively correlates with performance. That's not the whole story. There's a very large story here that we have to consider, and that and that's what we base policy on. We don't just listen to somebody who got a PhD making shit up in soci- sociological circles. Um, obviously, I'm not very fond of the of uh, some of these new postmodernism fields where. The idea is 
in literature, it made sense. Postmodernism in literature, if you don't know what it is, you can look up postmodernism. But in literature, it was the idea, it's like, there is no one correct interpretation of the writing. Uh, the interpretation is based on who's reading it. And I think that's very valid in literature because somebody, people will always get something different out of their their world experiences. And reading a book, particularly fiction, carries with it an experience that is going to differ from individual to individual. Uh, some books that I've loved to, I've, I've absolutely loved, uh, other people have just hated. And the same thing goes for movies. Uh, postmodern and a postmodern analysis of movies, I think, is also very fair because everybody in the audience is going to have a different experience. But when it comes to facts, there is no, and this is where a lot of these postmodernists who have gotten into these sociological effects and the transgender studies and what have you, I, I think that stuff is important to study. I just cannot call it a science. I will never call it a science. But the problem is when they bleed over this idea of postmodernism into facts and science, say, well, you know, science, there are no facts in science. They're all, it, it all just depends on the observer. That is asinine. So you're telling me if I throw a Canadian out a window and they don't believe in gravity that because of the culture they were grown up in, that they're just going to float away and fly off to where they want, whereas... I throw somebody from Germany out a window whose gravity has been ingrained in their culture forever because they were so good with ballistics in World War II that when I throw them out the window, they're going to hit the ground. Like that is absolutely stupid. There are facts of the world. There are facts of physiology. And we need to base these things off of facts. And this is like a huge social rant. It's been bothering me for a long time because even the athletes who participate, um, like... Rachel McKinnon, who in the master's class won a gold medal for sprinting. A, she has all of the advantages I mentioned. And B, she wants to discuss it because she was an athlete, but she's still not qualified. She does not understand how the body works. She just says, well, I'm a woman, therefore I can compete as a woman, and who cares if I you know, am dominating the field. What is lost in that conversation is she has not been cycling that long within a few years of cycling she went and this is at a master's level so as an older female with a few years of training she suddenly becomes the best in the world that's just clear evidence of what i'm saying is true that there are physiological differences that we just have to take into account and her background is not in science. Her background is in social studies. She's not qualified to participate in the discussion other than saying, well, yes, I didn't train very long and I became the best in the world uh, against women who've been training their whole lives. Like that is a critical piece of evidence to drive home what is being said here. And there's many, many other examples of athletes and again, I'm not faulting the athletes whatsoever. I understand them wanting to compete at the highest level they can compete at. But it also needs to be fair to athletes who've dedicated their lives to some of these sports who now can no longer compete just because of physiological reasons. It's just not fair. It is a major injustice. And again, telling transgender athletes that they can't compete at all anywhere is also a ma major injustice. And I think that we can come up with a solution that addresses all of that. Um, it Obviously, it, it will be some complex, somewhat complex and not fun for a while, but it is totally doable. And it is the only sane conversation that we can really have about this topic. So uh, again, this one was kind of ranty, uh, but... It, it did a few things. It helped to tie in how important glycogen is to exercise performance, how important glycogen is to particular types of exercise performance, both positive and negative, and how testosterone is one of the key regulators, both in a positive and negative way, depending on the exercise perf performance that you're trying to achieve. So it's kind of stupid at this point to just talk about testosterone in exercise you really need to tell me what exercise it is that you're talking about so that we can figure out is 
testosterone an advantage or a disadvantage. Um, and it also helps to explain why women have a harder time losing body fat. Uh, that is, mitochondrial damage is, is highly related to your ability to mobilize glycogen, which then, if you can't, you add more body fat uh, quicker uh, when you get into diseased states. And in men, it helps explain why we grow so quickly and why we tend to add body fat later in life than women will. And, and actually all of this helps to explain why women can in particular have longer lifespans in our society because there's a high correlation there to mitochondrial damage. If you look at the diseases that men die of and women also succumb to similar diseases, but much later, that's highly related to diet and mixed fuel diets where you're trying to eat carbs and fat at the same time, women are actually much better at not utilizing the carbohydrates. So they use more fat. So they slow down and it's very slow, obviously, but it, and it's not something you could recognize in a year or two years or three years. Cause if you think about it, their lifespan is a couple years longer than men's in general, or maybe up to four. So it's a very, small decrease in damage over time and men in general suffer from that more and that also explains why stress cortisol levels can correlate with mortality because cortisol levels even though this is another thing peter atia got completely wrong he said it was an anabolic hormone for fat which we absolutely know it's not it's absolutely catabolic for fat unless you're on a carbohydrate based diet um, and when cortisol levels get very high, you have other adrenaline levels also get very high. And it's trying to force the body into burning fat even when carbohydrates are around. So if you're stressed out all the time and you have high cortisol levels, you're actually forcing the mixed fuel through the mitochondria, which is damaging it at a higher pace, which then would relate to overall mortality. Um, all of these things are tied together, right? It's just... Part of me, I'm like super excited and at the same time super frustrated because there's so many different conversations about, oh, well, it's this way. And somebody says, oh, it's this way. But no, it's all one thing. It's one human body. And it doesn't matter if you spread that across disease states or gender or continents. It's one human body. And there are some fundamental processes that will dictate the majority of diseases that we see that are clearly metabolic diseases. But anyway, that'll be a conversation for the next hour. Again, I hope everybody is enjoying these and I'd love to have your support. And the vast majority of support that I'm asking for is to share this stuff, get people to listen to it and talk to them about it. Uh, I think it's very important to start having these conversations. They're incredibly important. Um, like on podcasts and so on and so forth. I, I'm hoping to get some people that I can discuss what it is they're talking about with what it is I'm talking about, but before that happens, they have to be somewhat familiar with it. Uh, so I'm hoping that this stuff gets shared and people listen to it and somebody wants to have a conversation, although I imagine the pool of people willing to have a conversation with me will be dwindling over time, but that's fine. Anyway, uh, I hope everybody enjoyed, and there's more coming up. And uh, I think that's all I've got for this one.